If you would <clears throat> take your Bibles tonight and turn again with me to the book of 2 Samuel. We were actually there a little bit earlier when Brother Isaac read, but a few chapters back from there. 2 Samuel chapter 14. And if you would stand uh, for the reading of the word, out of respect for the word, the living word of God, I want to read 2 Samuel 14, and we'll begin at verse 28 and go through uh, 5, 6, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, (laughs) that don't make sense, 15, verse 6. Okay, 2 Samuel 14, beginning at verse 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, Let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Chapter 15. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared his chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed Deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, of oh, oh that I were made judge in the land, that every man which had hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You may be seated. Let's pray. 
Father, truly, we cannot do anything without you tonight, and we do need your spirit. Lord, thank you for the how you have already encouraged our souls. Lord, continue to con- encourage us now. Lord, lift us up to sit with thee in those heavenly places. Lord, make us to hear thy word. Dig them out, Lord. Dig out our ears to hear your word. Take the crumbs of this, Lord, and feed your people. Lord, we know of ourselves that we're not sufficient, and it is nothing. But, Lord, thou art all. Thou art everything. Thou art our all in all tonight. Oh, Lord, use your word tonight. Use the agency of, uh, Lord, just a man. And help us, Lord, together tonight to exalt your name, to lift it up on high, to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I first started looking at this scripture, and... Came to verse 6, which is our text. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. I was looking at the, ver- the first six verses of this chapter. And I have realized that <clears throat> I have danced all around it, but I have not talked about <clears throat> those six verses. And that's what originally kind of drew me in what I began to look at. And even tonight, we're not going there. Lord willing, I do have perhaps one more time uh, in this session to teach, and, and I pray that the Lord would help me because that was what first called my attention to this scripture. And I realized also that this was... Tonight, more topical than what I meant for it to be. I meant to maybe flow with the scripture more in an expositional way, but it is more topical. But pray that the Lord would use it tonight. And I've, I've titled this, How Did We Get Here? How did we get here? We have been looking at this matter that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And we want to consider that again tonight. According to some of the st- stats that I, statistics that I found online, the average cost of commercial demolition in the United States is somewhere between twenty-four to thirty thousand dollars for demolition. Commercial. That is a lot of money for tearing something down. Demolition is a big business, and we can see a need for it. Where, where there is a want or a need for the complete reconstruction of, a, of an existing site, there is need for demolition. And there are many factors that go into demolition when you consider the safety issues for such an occupation. 
both the workers and the public, you realize immediately the level and skill that is necessary and the right equipment that's necessary for that kind of for demolition. Uh, you're driving down the interstate and you go under a bridge and they're doing construction on it. You don't want, you know, George to look at Paul and say, oh, I dropped it while you're driving under there. There's a lot of things that go in to demolition. There are, of course, certain structures that can be demolished fairly easily. But there are many structures that take great care to avoid personal injury or property loss. And I can't imagine what has gone into the demolition of the three-mile bridge going from Pensacola to Gulf Breeze. Certainly the greatest cost would be the reconstruction of a new bridge, but demolition is big business. I tried to find the cost, the estimated cost, for the old three-mile bridge, and I could not find it. But just the demolition of the old fishing pier was $4.1 million. Demolition can be something very useful, good, helpful, but it can also be a very destructive thing. Ecclesiastes 3.3 says there's a time to break down and a time to build up. Gideon, God called Gideon to tear down his father's groves and idols. Gideon and his demolition team of ten men went by night and tore down the altar of Baal that belonged to his father and cut down his groves. This was a time to tear down. And God commanded him to do it, and Gideon was obedient. He did it by night for fear. But he, he tore it down. Biblically speaking, demolition can be a very good and godly thing. But it can also be very destructive, spiritually destructive. When Hezekiah became the king of Judah, he tore down all the idols that his father Ahaz had worshipped. But when Hezekiah died and his son Manasseh began to reign... Manasseh tore down everything that Hezekiah built up, and he built up everything that Hezekiah had tore down. Hezekiah had worked hard many years to restore godly worship and righteousness in Israel, yet it did not take Manasseh long to tear it down. Ecclesiastes 9.18 says this, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. And that's a sobering thought. And it contrasts the wisdom of righteousness with the destruction of a sinner. Wisdom seeks to preserve life and unity and character. But one sinner is able to destroy much good. That's sobering. 
this verse should cause us to tremble. It should cause us to tremble over the very destructive nature of sin itself. One sinner destroyeth much good. Now, we should not assume that this one sinner knows that they are a sinner. They may actually believe that they are doing well. And yet, by their sin, they destroy much good. Paul was convinced that he was serving God by persecuting the Christians. The greatest threat to the well-being of a local congregation is not the heathen man without, but false brethren within. The Apostle Paul, in speaking of the perils of the Christian ministry, lists among such a list as he had the perils of false brethren. And to this same threat, he warns the Ephesian elders that we have been listening to and hearing Pastor develop in his, uh, the sermons on pastors after God's own heart. Acts 20.30 says, Also of your own selves men shall, ar- shall arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And the conclusion of the matter was this, in verse 31, Therefore watch. That's the call to elders specifically, but also to the church generally. Watch. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Here was the heart of Paul. He stood... Here stood the testimony of his ceaseless efforts to warn Christ's churches with tears that there would be men rising up from among them, speaking perverse things to do what? Draw away disciples after them. Brethren, if this is true of one sinner, we could also say that one sin can destroy much good. Even the sins of the saints, we don't generally think like that. But how much good can be destroyed by just one sin? When we consider the battle that we face as Christians, and the work, and the struggle, and the fight that each day brings, the flesh warring against the spirit, and the spirit warring against the flesh, we could all agree that it is not easy gaining ground and growing in our walk with Christ. It's not easy. It's work. It's not automatic to mature in the faith and in sound doctrine. And although Christ provides a complete justification, we soon discover that every bit of ground gained in our sanctification is by the working out and the exercising of the faith and the grace that he has given us. Paul says to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, my brothers and sisters, 
The advances that we strive for in the Christian life usually come to us by work, patience, and perseverance. Gaining ground is difficult, but how many times we have found out by experience that losing ground is easy, and that by one sin, we can destroy much good. One man or one woman can, by their delay or refusal to repent of a known sin, cause the destruction of much good, even in a congregation. Perhaps good that has taken much time and effort to bear fruit. Very sobering matter. It is no wonder that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This speaks to us as a church to be, as we've heard, to be awake, to be on our guard, to be watchful of our own selves and our brethren, and not to, by our rash and hasty words, destroy much good. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. That verse has a definite contrast to it that we've already mentioned. The wisdom of the wise and godly man is contrasted with the destructive nature of the ungodly sinner. And it's hard for us to fathom that the potential destruction and demolition that one sinner that one sinner can cause. It is hard for us to imagine that a, that a whole nation could eventually be divided by the supposed righteous cause of one man. One man named Absalom. Just one. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, it's been a while since we looked at this, so forgive me if there's a little bit of repeating. But think again about the condition of Israel at this time. Israel is divided. The nation is divided. There are factions in the land. And how did they get to this point? How did they get here. How did Israel get to this tragic point in their history? A common question that's often asked in any church split is, how did we get here? How did we get here? How did we get to this point? Boy, that, that, that's never a, a pleasant question to ask or to hear someone ask. There is nothing inherently warm or friendly about this question. It's not user-friendly. I don't, I don't like this question. I've asked it, and I don't like it. Not so much because the question itself is bad, but because of the reality of the situation that the question presents, and that many, many times there are no clear answers. You will not find the answer to such a question, how did we get here, by only thinking in terms of recent developments. 
A nation such as Israel or a congregation or a family does not get to that point overnight. Things usually brew and fester. And when they're not dealt with, eventually they come out. How did we get here? How did Israel get here? There are, of course, no quick and easy answers to that question. It is often as Joseph's coat of many colors. The problems and issues that often lead up to such factions and divisions are usually many, diverse, as Paul faced in Corinth. But I will tell you where we have to start. We have to start with sin. Sin divides families, it divides nations, sin divides congregations. That takes us back to our verse from Ecclesiastes. One sinner destroyeth much good. Brother Ron read in the epistle of Jude a short time ago on the Lord's Day. And this verse stood out to me. Jude 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. One man. One sinner. And ran greedily after the heir of Balaam. One man. One sinner. For reward. And perished in the gainsaying of Korah. One man. One sinner. One sinner destroys much good. Those men destroyed much good. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. I think that oftentimes we impersonalize sin. What I mean by that is that we think of sin as something separate from a sinner. We ought not to see sin as some entity that exists in itself or some impersonal force that lives outside of a person. Sin has an agency. And that and as an agency, sin is working through persons. And that makes sin personal. It is not impersonal. It does not exist as some entity floating around in space outside of persons. In other words, sin does not commit sin. Sinners commit sin. Sin has a personal agency that it works through, whether that agency is human or angelic. Sin is very personal. And where... Sorry, there is a person involved. Sin exists in men and devils. Human sin and depravity is the disobedience and rebellion of man against God and against his word and against his law. And what, why am I saying all this? When we consider this scripture that says, but one sinner destroyeth much good, we must realize that there's a personal agency to this. There is a sinner involved. Just to say that, one sinner destroyeth much good. It sounds like, why would you even say that? But that involves a person. A man, a woman, a person is doing the sinning. 
when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he didn't treat sin as some impersonal force. He wanted to know who the sinner was that was destroying much good. And whether he wanted a name or just that they would think in those terms. Paul says in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. Who? Who hath bewitched you? Who is it? Someone has turned you aside from the truth. Someone has, as it were, cast a spell over you. That is personal. Someone has power over you. The language here, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Paul goes on. In Galatians 5, you did run well. (laughs) Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. You were running well. You guys were doing so good. Not, Not saying that in some kind of pep rally, but you were doing well. You were doing good. Who hindered you? It, it wasn't some impersonal force in the congregation. There were either persons or a person, and they were persuasive and charming, and they were leading the congregation away from obedience to the truth. And Paul finally says in 5.12, I would, they were even cut off from, cut off which trouble you. Friends, I'm not advocating that we're always looking for someone to blame. But I am saying that sin is personal, and it is men and women who sin, and that one sin can destroy much good. That has been established in a family, a community, a nation, or a local congregation. This is why the scriptures speak about the way of Cain and the heir of Balaam and the gang saying of Korah. Those were men who by their sin, unrepentant sin and rebellion, destroyed much good. Listen to this uh, scripture in Proverbs 6. These six things that the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. When I read that and I see that, I see it as a whole package deal. I don't see that this is speaking of one man over here who has a proud look 
and another one over there who has a lying tongue, and still another who is swift and running to mischief. No, I rather see that this is a description of a wicked man, one sinner that has all these abominations living in their heart. Can you fit that many sins in a heart? Oh, yes. Without Jesus Christ, we are an abomination to God. We are hell-deserving sinners. Even the deeds and works that we would count as righteousness are but filthy rags to him. Any favor or grace or goodness that we have of God must come through the merits of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why we sing, Jesus, keep me near the cross. I want you to listen to this scripture in Psalms. You're welcome to turn there if you would or want to. Psalms 10. I just want to read a few verses out of that. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let, <clears throat> let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all of his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all of his enemies, he puffeth at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He setteth in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. <clears throat> he crouches and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He, abide, he hideth his face. He will never see it. I remember at some point after the Lord saved me, I had read this chapter. When, I first, when the Lord first saved me, um, I did a lot of underlining in my Bible. I wrote dates. <laughs> Um, that Bible that I got right after uh, I was saved is well marked. But I had, a, I had one word written by this chapter. It's the word me. 
it was the word me. I read it, and the Lord showed me this wasn't someone else. It was me. <clears throat> you know, when the Lord saves us, we read the word, and it's often, thou art the man. Praise God that he takes men like that who are described in chapters like Proverbs 6 and Psalms 10, and he gives them a new heart. And he puts his spirit within them. And he causes us to fear and love him. I say amen. Now, when we started this study, we started with a question, who has your heart? Who has your heart? And the intent of that question wasn't to be touchy-feely or to create some emotional response. But it was to cause us to think about our call to faithfulness and unity in the body of Christ. Ultimately, our allegiance and loyalty in the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be faithful unto him who died for us, but within the framework Within that framework of being faithful to Christ, we are called to be faithful and loyal one to another. The purpose of that question, who has your heart? Our unity in the local body of Christ rises no higher than our faithfulness to Christ and his church. That's worth repeating. Our unity in the local body of Christ rises no higher than our faithfulness to Christ and his church. This whole conspiracy of Absalom's rise to power and his feverish attempt and plot to take over the throne of David has reference and consequence for the church today. It's not some irrelevant passage. It's not extra words in holy writ. Esther and I, when in the past, I haven't said it for a while, but I think maybe in the past when we went out to eat, and uh, we were not to the main dish yet, and I always said to her, this is filler stuff. It's just filler. This is not filler. There is nothing in Scripture that is just there to fill. There's purpose and reason for it. Every word of God There are three verses in chapter 15 that I think highlight Absalom's conspiracy and rebellion. Not that there are, I mean, there are many scriptures actually that speak of it, but these three seem to highlight his conspiracy and rebellion. So in 2 Samuel 15, 6 is our text. And on this manner did Absalom to all of Israel that came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Secondly, at the end of verse 12, at the very end of verse 12 we read, And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased with Absalom. This verse refers even to Ahithophel's betrayal, how he became part of the conspiracy, and then the third verse that we read in verse 13, 2 Samuel 15, 13. And there came a messenger to David saying, 
the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. All these verses here that we've read serve as a wake-up call. They all reveal a serious threat to the existence and unity of a nation called by God to be his witness to all nations around them. This was a wake-up call. This was certainly a wake-up call for David, but it was a wake-up call also for the whole nation. I don't remember where I read this, but somewhere I read a quote from Alexander McLaren that he said it was during this time of Absalom's revolt that David suffered the darkest days of his life. And when you stop to consider everything that David went through in his life, went through much, much trouble, much affliction, much sorrow. Makes that statement amazing that it was during this time that he felt was the darkest days for David. Absalom's revolt would have seemed to David like the king of the hill compared to many others. The weight and burden during this time would have seemed to David to be unbearable. I think that that in itself reveals both David's affection and favoritism of Absalom. I believe that David was drawn to Absalom and favored him because Absalom had some of the same natural tendencies, talents, and abilities that David had, which you read through this, and he didn't use it for good, but he had many natural talents. He no doubt exhibited some of the same strengths and leadership qualities that his dad had. But Absalom knew nothing of David's character, honor, and integrity. Absalom did not know how to manage himself. He did not know how to control or restrain his passions. He was a wild ass's colt. In Proverbs 16.32, it says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. Boy, that puts some perspective on on what true might and power and leadership is. He that ruleth his spirit being better than he that taketh the city. If you would go back with me to 2 Samuel 14, where we began reading tonight, verse 28. 2 Samuel 14, 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. If you remember in our last visit to this passage, Joab, in perceiving that the king's heart was towards Absalom, had brought Absalom back from Gesher to Jerusalem. But Absalom 
was made to go to his own house and not see the king's face. He wasn't allowed to see the king. So Absalom was in exile in Gesher, and actually it was a self-imposed exile. After he murdered Amnon, he left and went to Gesher for three years. And now he's back in Jerusalem, and he's been back two years, and he still has not seen his father. So altogether, five years have gone by, and Absalom has not seen the king's face. That works the other way around, too. David has not seen his face. Absalom, by his age and position in the family, is set to be the next king of Israel. But there is the problem. He does not have the favor and acceptance of his father, or the court, or the kingdom. And he knows his time is short. Who does that sound like? Things are not happening fast enough, and he is tired of waiting. It seems like he wanted to make things happen and get the ball rolling. He wanted his best life now. Joab had already gone to bat for him once, and now it was time to put him to work again. So in verse 29, we read, Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have him sent to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So twice now he sent for Joab, who brought him, as we said, from Gesher, and acted on his behalf for an audience with the king, but Joab did not come. So, as we said last time as well, Absalom had his servants burn Joab's barley fields. And this, of course, got his attention, and naturally Joab comes complaining. So then we read in verse 31. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom and to his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? Now that seems like a fair question to me. But that's not how Absalom treated it. Notice here how that Absalom is used to getting his own way. And he does not accept no for an answer. Absalom is the offender here, right? He's the offender. He has done the offending. And yet he is demanding action and response to his whims and desires. He set Joab's field on fire just to get his attention. Notice what he says to Joab in verse 32. Now we're in 2 Samuel 14, 32. We are making progress. And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Gesher? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore... Let me see the king's face, 
And if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Now, we won't get through this whole verse tonight, but I do want to hit a, a few things. And I, I'm not even sure when I read, I'm not even sure where to start. Absalom is a coward and a liar. Absalom was not at all ashamed or backwards in telling Joab that the reason that he set his fields on fire was that he had sent for Joab, saying, come hither, and Joab didn't come. I told you to come, and you did not come to me. Now, how brazen is that? How brazen. I sent unto thee, saying, come hither, that I may send you to the king. And you're asking me why my servants set your field on fire? Ridiculous question. Isn't it obvious? You know, as I read this, I wondered who else would have gotten by with this with Joab. Who else but Absalom could have gotten by with this? Who else could have made Joab his puppet? When you think about Joab, he was David's military man. He was a mighty man of valor. He did not have much trouble killing an enemy. He didn't seem to have any trouble placing his knife under the fifth rib. We know that eventually it was Joab that killed Absalom against David's own orders. Absalom is proud, and pride is often foolish and brazen and has no respect or fear of authority. And we see that in Absalom right here. No regard or fear of authority. None. It's not there. Absalom then demands a response from Joab. Wherefore am I come from Geshur? Now, remember, as we have just said, that Joab had brought him back from Geshur, and he used a worldly wise woman of Tekoa to manipulate David to bringing home his poor, helpless, banished son, Absalom. You read these chapters, not that any of you watch soap operas, but you don't have to. You read these chapters, and it's full of intrigue and Mystery, I'm not comparing it, okay, to that. But it is amazing, the manipulation and deceit and craft that are in these chapters. <clears throat> Absalom demands from Joab, wherefore am I come from Geshur? Why, why have you brought me back here? Notice there's no gratefulness or thankfulness of what Joab has already done for him. I mean, he's already gone to bat. He brought him back from Geshur. And instead of giving him any kind of regard or thanks, it's, wherefore am I come from Geshur? It would have been good for me to be there still. Absalom would seek to convince Joab that he is the victim here. 
And this is the logic that he used. It would have been better to be left in Gesher than to be brought back to Jerusalem. The result is the same either way. I have not profited from it. I am still prohibited to see my father's face. Nothing has been improved by this. Let me put it another way. Absalom's argument could be this. If I'm not allowed to see my father's face, then you should have not brought me home. The fact that I'm here now and cannot see his face is your fault, not mine. This is so deceptive and manipulative. Instead of Absalom being shamed over his sin, he is now actually shaming Joab. He is shaming Joab, but even more, he's shaming his own father. In fact, all of this is really pointed towards his father. Joab was just a messenger boy. He was a pawn on Absalom's chessboard. Absalom's whole attitude, as we have said earlier, is proud and demanding. Remember Proverbs 6. These six things God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet swift in running to mischief, a false witness, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Don't forget that last one. He that soweth discord among the brethren. One sinner destroyeth much good. And this is what these sinners are about. They would sow discord among the brethren. That's what Absalom is about. He would steal the hearts of the men of Israel. Friends, we need to learn who Absalom is. We need to know how to identify Absalom. We need to see where Absalom may be in us. There are still some Absaloms in the church today. There are still men who are raised up to sow discord among the brethren. They may do it loudly and visibly, or they may do it by stealth, secretly. But either way, it can destroy much good. In Absalom's reasoning, the problem isn't so much with him, it's with everybody else. How do you reason with that kind of person? How, How do you deal with Absalom? Absalom, for the most part, or David, for the most part, did not deal with him, and it cost a lot. How great the cost for David in not dealing properly with Absalom. We're going to go ahead and close tonight, and maybe we can look more next time in dealing with Absalom. Uh, We all may know an Absalom. But listen to these quotes as we, uh, as we end here. And, and this really brings it down to the, our homes. We, we're, we pray for our homes. Um, we know David was a godly man. 
but he really missed it here with Absalom. Matthew Henry said this, Those parents know not what they do who indulges a proud humor in their children. For I have seen more young people ruined by pride than by one lust whatsoever. David, as much of a man of God as he was, failed to instruct, correct, and chasten his son. In many ways, I think he left Absalom to himself. In many ways, he neglected his son. He did not put his son on the potter's will of godly parenting to shape and to mold him according to the scriptures. And how many of us have failed at that very point? We have sowed to the wind, and we have reaped the whirlwind. William Plummer said this, Many a parent is preparing wormwood and gall for his old age. Uh, those are sobering verses. Friends, I don't want anybody to be cast down without hope tonight. I don't want to discourage anybody with my words. Pray that there's a few crumbs from the Lord's table. I don't have power over any man's faith. I want to be a helper to faith. And I want your faith to help me, encourage me. And it does. I thank you for it. But I want to look at one scripture before we close that encouraged my soul many times, especially after I first got saved. The writer to the Hebrews has just gone through a very heavy, heavy and sobering portion of scripture. He has warned the Hebrews with this admonition. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meat, for them by whom it was dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned." Listen to this next verse. Imagine the Hebrews hearing this, even for the first time. Because how many of us know too much of those thorns? Verse 9, Hebrews 6, 9. But beloved... <laughs> We are persuaded better things of you. And things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Amen. Glory. I want to know more of those things that accompany salvation. What an encouragement this must have been. What an encouragement to us. Brethren, our, our God is a God of hope. He restores the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm. 
He caused that which is not as though it were. He brings light out of darkness, life out of the grave. To those who have little strength, he increaseth their strength. To those who have no might, he gives them might. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.